I forbid, you maidens all, that wear gold in your hair, to come or go to Carter Hall, for young Tam Lim is there. Of those that dare to Carter Hall, they must leave him a pledge, either their mantles of green, or else their maidenhead. This was the warning that Janet had heard over and over again. Heard it as she sat in her bower, sewing with silken thread and silver needle. Heard it in her father's hall, where four and twenty knights played and jested and drank. Heard it late at night, whispered in the darkness. Janet had heard the warning not to go to Carter Hall, or Carter Hall as some people called it. She had heard the warning, but she had not heeded the threat. Carter Hall was a wooded area in the borders between England and Scotland. It had once belonged to her family, passed down through the generations, and it should by right be hers, her inheritance. But no man or woman went by Carter Hall. The borderland was wild. One might expect to find thieves or outlaws there, or even Tam Lim. Janet, though, she had no fear of men from this world or the next. So one day she hitched up her green kirtle, hitched it up above her knee so it would not be caught by thorns or brambles, braided back her golden hair, and with a dagger at her waist, she went to Carter Hall. She found it beautiful, the land which men had left nature had reclaimed. Wildflowers and wild mushrooms grew in the shelter of the trees. She walked deeper into the woods, drawn by the sweet smell of roses. And at last she found the source of that scent. Roses. Double roses. Roses with petals of white and red. Two flowers on one stem. She took her knife to cut the rose from the tree, but as the blade touched the flower, a hand clamped about Janet's wrist. Lady, pull no more. The voice was male and young and strong. Janet turned to face the speaker. What made you come here? What made you take that rose? How dare you come to Carter Hall without leave of me? Janet knew who it was she was facing. Without needing to be told, she knew that this youth, this man, must be Tam Lim. But she felt no fear. She shook her head and pulled her wrist back from his grasp. Carter Hall is not yours. And as for roses, there are many, and I, sir, shall come and go as I please. I need not ask leave of you or of any man. Tam Lim, the elfin shade, the fairy knight that haunted these woods, seemed astonished. He let her wrist go and stared at her. Janet plucked the double rose, the rose of white and red, plucked it defiantly from the tree and tucked it into her golden hair. You, you cannot do that. None may come here, not without paying some price. The price I pay for coming here is on my own two feet. And while Tam Lim was still trying to make sense of this, Janet left, taking with her the double rose. For some time Janet stayed in her father's castle, sitting in her bower, sewing with silken thread and silver needle, but her mind kept wandering back to Carter Hall, 
kept wandering back to the roses red and white, kept wandering back to the strange youth, the strange shade, the one they called Tam Lim. One day a restlessness came upon her, and she let the silver needle fall to the ground. Again she hitched up her kirtle green, and again she went to Carter Hall. Again she walked through the woods drawn forth by the scent of roses. Again she found the double rose, the rose of white and red. She plucked the rose again and again up there sprang young Tam Lim. Lady, you come again, he said. And what price shall you pay this time? Another journey from your feet? No, spoke Janet. This time I shall pay for the double rose with a kiss. And so saying, she took Tam Lim by the hand and raised her own rose lips to his. She took him by the sleeve and laid him down amongst the roses green. And Tam Lim, he took Janet by the arm, he took her by the hem and laid her down among the roses red, roses red and white. And so it was, Janet, she came and went by Carter Hall. And just as she had said, she asked no leave of any man when she came and went. And so it went, and so it might have continued, had Janet's father not noticed a, a change in his daughter, as she walked about the four-and-twenty knights and the four-and-twenty ladies of his hall. He could not but see that the face of his daughter had grown paler. He noticed how in the morning she would eat no food, the very smell of the breakfast cooking seeming to turn her stomach, but her appetite would return later in the day. He noticed how her gowns began to grow a little tighter. When he felt certain of his guess, Janet's father took her quietly aside and said, My dear, I think you go with child. Tell me, is it to a man of might or to a man of means that you have given your heart? Who among my gentlemen shall give the child his name? At this Janet turned paler than her father could have believed, paler than milk, paler than glass. Oh, father! There is no man that I would treat so well. There is none among your gentlemen that can give this child its name. With tears in her eyes, Janet fled from her father, fled from his halls and fled towards Carter Hall. But this time she did not seek the sweet rose, no. Janet went to seek amongst the weeds and amongst the thorns. She went to seek the poison flower, but just as she plucked it, a hand clamped about her wrist. Lady, pull no more! The voice was strong and young, and one she knew well. What makes you pull the poison rose? Do you not know what that flower will do? What it will do to you? What it will do to what you carry? Janet snatched back her hand, and with it the poison spiked purple flower. Oh, I know well this herb and what it will do, Tamlim. I have no wish to carry the thing that you have got with me. If you were a man of flesh, perhaps I might love the child when it came. But you are some wild shade, some creature of the fairy world, and I know not what this thing will grow to be. Tamlim's voice grew quiet, and it took on a tone and a shade Janet had never seen before. Is that what you think of me? What you think I am? Perhaps it is what I will become, but I tell you, I was born of mortal flesh and mortal mother. I was once an earthly knight, but the Queen of Fairies caught me when I fell from my horse. It was in her service that I dwelt here, 
mortal man I am now, but perhaps. Perhaps? Perhaps what? Tamlim gave a rueful smile. Oh, all is pleasant in the fairy land, but there is an eerie tale they tell. For once on every seven years, they pay a tithe to hell. The devil in his throne has given my queen power, but she must pay her respects and pay her dues once every seven years. And the seventh year it is coming, and I, being so fair and so full of flesh, I fear that I shall be the offering. No, spoke Janet before her mind had time to catch up with her mouth. No, if I must bear this child, it shall have a father. Tell me, Tamlim, how to bring you back into the mortal world, how to bring you back into my world. Well, they say that those who their true love would win can do it. And if you are determined to have me as the father of your child, it is in your power, Janet. But I warn you, it is not easy. When the fairy folk ride on Halloween, you must lie in wait. Wait and let them pass on horseback of black and of brown, and you shall see me there among them upon a white steed. As I was an earthly knight, they give me that renown. Pull me down from the white horse, and then hold me tight in your arms. Hold me tight and do not let me go. They will turn me into terrible things in your arms, into a snake, a newt, a lion, a bear, a wolf, but hold me tight. Fear me not, and I shall be the loving father of your child. They parted tenderly, and on the night of Halloween, Janet went to the mill's cross and hid in wait. Under the light of the moon she watched the fairy band processing by. She saw the queen of fairies draped in spider silk with raindrop pearls hanging from her hair. She saw the fairy knights and fairy ladies, each upon their great dark horse. And then she saw Tamlim, her Tamlim, riding just as he had said upon a white steed. Janet sprang from her hiding place and pulled the rider down from the white horse. He made no resistance as she wrapped him tight in her cloak, held him tight, held him fast, but she began to feel him changing, the shape changing into that of a wild bear, but still Janet held tight, fearing him not, and then she felt him change again, becoming a wolf, but still she held tight, still she feared him not. She felt him change again, and again, and again, his body becoming large, small, rough, smooth, slick and slimy, spiked, but still she held him tight, she feared him not. He was her love, he was the father of her child, the man she had chosen as her husband, and she held him tight, she feared him not, and at last he gave a shriek and a shudder, and Janet opened her eyes and found that in her arms was a naked man, Tam Lim. Her, Tam Lim. She wrapped him tight in her cloak, and she brought him home. And that was the story of Tam Lim. I hope you enjoyed my retelling of it. The story comes from a ballad known as the Ballad of Tam Lim, and it's a story from the Scottish Lowlands. There are a lot of different versions of the ballad. I was using as my main source uh, two recordings of the ballad, two sung recordings, one by the Fairpoint Coventry, which I think is from the 70s, 
and the other recorded by Anise Mitchell, who is also the composer of Hades Town. If you listen to either of these recordings, you'll notice that I took some lines directly from the song, particularly the opening, I forbid you maidens all, so on and so forth. Both Mitchell and the Fairpoint Coventry were taking the Ballad of Tam Lim from the collection by James Francis Child, known as the Child Ballads. Child was an American folklorist and collector who was probably best known for his collection of English and Scottish ballads, referred to as the Child Ballads, which initially confused me a little bit when I heard something referred to as a child ballad and it was about a gruesome murder. A lot of the child ballads are, well, they're very interesting. They've got great stories, but I wouldn't call them child friendly. Anyway, the Ballad of Tam Lim is guesstimated to date from the 16th century, or at least that's when the first written records of it seem to show up. There are a lot of different versions of it. Child was collecting in the 19th century and even in his collection there are four different versions of the Ballad of Tam Lim. All versions keep to roughly the same plot points. Janet, or she's sometimes known as Margaret, meeting Tam Lim in this wood where she's not meant to go, them forming some sort of relationship and her then saving him from the Queen of the Fairies. Some versions go on a little bit further. They detail how the Queen of the Fairies reacts to having her favourite and her tithe to hell stolen from under her nose. She curses both Tamlim and Janet. In some versions, her cursing of them is more of a ah, damn it, I would have gotten away if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. Other versions, her curse her curse is more she dooms Janet to die bearing the child of Tamlim. She also mentions that if she had known this would happen when she first saw Tamlim, she would have turned him into a tree. The Fairy Queen's reaction is included in the recording by the Fairpoint Coventry, but not in Mitchell's recording. Actually, Mitchell's recording doesn't explicitly state that Tamlim was stolen by the Fairy Queen. It just implies that he has been trapped by some supernatural force. In some versions, as well as transforming into a number of wild beasts while in Janet's arms, Tamlim ultimately transforms into a hot coal, which she either has to continue to hold, even though it burns her, or place in water and thus wash away the enchantment. There are a lot of different versions of this ballad, and you can kind of pick and choose the details you like. There is one thing, though, that those of you who are already familiar with the story of Tamlim may have noticed I made a bit of a change on, and that is to do with the matter of consent. I decided I wanted the relations between Tamlim and Janet to be explicitly consensual and in fact have her being the one to initiate them. The thing that seems to attract most people to this story is the fact that Janet is an active heroine. She goes and she does things. She is the one who rescues the hero. It's not the knight rescuing the princess, it's Janet rescuing Tamlim. This ballad is also one of the rare examples of a woman engaging in premarital sex and not being punished for it. It's also a ballad that openly discusses the idea of abortion. And again, Janet isn't punished or demonised for going out to find the herbs that will induce an abortion. When in full knowledge of all the facts, she decides not to go through with the abortion. But she isn't punished for considering it. Whether or not she's going to bear the child, it's her choice. And because Janet is an active heroine, 
is shown to have agency and control over her own destiny and her own body, that is why I wanted to make the relationship between Tamlim and Janet explicitly consensual. Because it isn't always. You can read some versions of the ballad and find that it's, um, it's a bit ambiguous whether this is consensual or not. I was reading an article by Maria P. Hexen titled Tam Lim, Fair Janet and the Sexual Revolution, Traditional Ballads, Fairy Tales and 20th Century Children's Literature. It's available on JSTOR if anyone wants to read it. And in that article, Hickson was discussing how when Janet goes out, she is traditionally coded as going out um, with sexual ideas or sort of ready for sex. She wears a green kirtle, which is mentioned in a lot of versions of the ballad. And the colour green, it's associated with two things. It's often strongly associated with fairies and the fae. They're often depicted wearing green or they seem to be drawn to people who are wearing green. But it's also associated with female sexuality. You you know, the whole green fertility and all that jazz. There's also a theory that the song Green Sleeves, in mentioning the green sleeves of the woman, is referring to grass stains in that she's a woman who has recently met her lover outside. And they didn't have a role in the hay, but they did have a role in the grass. So Janet going out into the place she has been warned about wearing green could be a sign that she's going out to explore her sexuality. Also, the braiding back of her hair, which is often referred to as gold, could have erotic connotations. Woman's hair is often sensualised or eroticised. And in the medieval world that this ballad takes place in, for a grown woman to be going out with her hair uncovered, even if it is braided, well, that is seen as an invitation to licentiousness which is something I really don't like because it sounds rather victim-blamey. If we take the braided hair and green kirtle as, I don't know, the medieval ballad equivalent of going out in a miniskirt and high heels, that doesn't mean she was quote-unquote asking for it. Just because she is open to the idea of sex doesn't mean that she owes it to the first man she meets. When we're first introduced to Tamlim in The Warning, I forbid you maidens all, so on, we're told that those who go to Carter Hall, if they meet him, they have to give him something. Either their jewellery, their mantle of green, or their maidenhead. Even before he meets Janet, we know that Tamlim will expect something from women either material goods or sex. And if you give someone an either or like that, uh, either your money or sex, that's not getting their consent. Even if they choose to give you sex rather than their jewellery, that is not consent. That is still rape. If this opening is included in a version of the ballad, even if it gets a little bit ambiguous about the goings-on between Janet and Tam Lim, it casts a shadow of suspicion over how consensual their... I'm struggling to think of appropriate euphemism, so I'm not going to bother. How consensual their sexual relationship was. Some versions of the ballad, though, they aren't even ambiguous on this point. They state he took her without her leave. Tamlim didn't take no for an answer. Janet was raped. And this is something I feel quite uncomfortable about in telling it. Because Janet then bonds with her rapist and goes through trials to 
win him as a husband. The Hickson article I mentioned earlier, it goes into detail how Janet's action of rescuing Tam Lim, it's often framed as true love triumphing over all, but she details how Janet has a practical motivation as well for rescuing the father of her child. It is unacceptable in her society for her to become a single mother, especially as she is the daughter of a noble. Her father asks her, which among my gentlemen shall give the child its name? Not asking who is the baby's father, but asking, who are you going to marry so we can claim that they're the father? And just a little side tangent, I do really like Janet's father in this ballad. In other ballads, fathers, when they discover that their daughter is pregnant out of wedlock, they become angry, they become violent. Her father seems quite accepting of the fact that she is pregnant, but knows that to continue in society, to continue with her place in society, this child will need a father, even if it's just a father in name. But back to what I was saying before. What was I saying before? Oh, yes. I feel very uncomfortable with the idea that Janet would have been raped by Tamlim and then would rescue Tamlim to claim her rapist as her husband. That is an idea I do not feel comfortable with. And there's a thing that comes up a lot in telling traditional tales. A lot of them, they can be quite problematic. So when you're faced with a problematic tale, do you tell it in its problematic version? keeping true to the original, to the time that the tale was recorded, to the tradition that goes with the tale? Or do you change it to make it more acceptable to the sensibilities of a modern audience? I think it's a really interesting question, and I think most storytellers will have their own feelings on this and their own attitude to it. Mine tends to be do both. If I'm telling a story with problematic elements to it, and there are a lot of those, I will try to acknowledge the problematic elements, either by slightly altering the narrative to highlight that this is problematic, or by including a meta-commentary saying, and in case anyone needs this pointed out, Ku Cullen was the epitome of toxic masculinity. With this story in particular, though, well, I had a lot of trouble. I think I've spent nearly a month trying to get an episode of Tam Lim done. Sorry for the long delay. I didn't, I couldn't find a way to tell it where Janet was raped and then claimed her rapist as her husband. I couldn't find a way that sat comfortably with me telling that. I couldn't, I tried telling it in ways pointing out this is, this is an issue. I tried telling it with a commentary with it, but it just didn't feel right. So I changed it. Again, the great thing about there being so many different versions of this ballad, there are versions where it implies consent. So I don't feel that by including consent that I am being untrue to the original story. And I believe that fairy tales, folk tales, traditional stories and ballads, things that exist in an oral culture, they are constantly changing and that it is fine to change it. In fact, I think that these things should be constantly changing because our society is constantly changing. We are constantly changing as storytellers, as audiences, as people. I sort of feel that when the stories stop changing, they start dying. And from a sort of 
sociological historical view, we often look back at these stories to get an idea of people's views, sensibilities, feelings on topics. So if our feelings, ideas, sensibilities, all that have changed, or in some cases they haven't changed, we're just expressing what we didn't say before, we need that to be reflected in our stories. I hope that ramble made sense. I think it's important to go back and look at the traditional tales and to see the progression of how they have changed from teller to teller. But that doesn't mean stopping future changes out of respect for the tradition. And don't get me wrong, I I don't think that all stories need to now be changed so that they have a happy, acceptable, socially and politically correct ending. There is definitely a place in stories and in storytelling for pointing out problems and the problematic. Storytelling, I find, can be a way of expressing things that it's difficult to say directly in words. There's a huge catharsis to be found there. Sometimes the catharsis can actually be found in changing the stories. A small example, Shannon, who you've, of course, you've heard on the podcast before, she on the YouTube channel Unlicensed Oral Arts, which is sort of a pet side project, she recently told the story of Ashpuddle, which is a version of Cinderella. She felt discomfort, though, in the original version. And she kept true to the original version for most of the story. But the ending, she changed it in such a way that she found a cathartic release in it. And if you would like to hear that story, I will have a link to the YouTube down in the episode description-y thing. There is a lot more I could talk about relating to Tamlim, uh, with how this fits into the idea of changeling narratives, because Tamlim is stolen by the fairies. He could be seen as a changeling, though it doesn't mention if something was put in his place to replace him. The notion of the fairies paying a tithe to hell is a really interesting topic, because it does answer one of the questions of what do fairies do with humans after they've stole them? But it then brings up this whole question of the relationship between the fairy world and the demonic world and Scottish witch trials. Because to be convicted of witchcraft, you had to be seen to have made a deal with the devil. And there was one Scottish man, a healer called Andrew Mann, who claimed that he had been given supernatural gifts by the Queen of the Fairies. And a lot of his trial for witchcraft involved them trying to get him to say, no, it wasn't the Queen of the Fairies, it was the devil. But again, that's another topic. There's a whole episode to be done on Scottish fairy lore, because while all Celtic fairy lore have some similarities, there are some notable key differences. Uh, One of the big ones I'm thinking off the top of my head is that in Scottish fairy lore, they have courts. They have the Seely Court and the Unseely Court, the sort of summer and winter. Whereas in Ireland, our fairies don't seem to be organised like that. In fact, our fairies seem to at times be very disorganised. There's also the theme of transformation and shape-shifting. A few stories have this idea of holding on to someone while they turn through various different shapes and forms. For example, in Greek mythology, Achilles' mother was a sea nymph and his father, in order to wet her, had to hold on to her while she transformed through a myriad of strange sea creatures. The stories of Achilles' parents... That's another story where the uh, the consent on the part of the woman in the relationship is, um, depending on who's telling the story, it's questionable. 
But while those are all very interesting topics for discussion, I'm afraid they're going to have to wait for another episode or another time. If anyone, though, is really interested in them, uh, maybe you have some stories that have popped into your mind that relate to any of those topics, you can get in touch with me and we can chat on the social medias. I am on Twitter at Tales Shadows. Again, there's a link in the episode description. On Instagram and Facebook, I am Tales from the Shadows. I, the podcast also has a Patreon. We have some really lovely patrons and their support has helped to cover the hosting costs and other such things. As I said, the links are in the episode description. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I hope you're safe. I hope you're well. I hope you're still washing your hands and wearing a mask. And I hope to tell you another story soon. <laughs>